Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Work hard. Identify and cultivate your passion. Be ambitious. Get a good education. Sacrifice to achieve your goals. Have integrity. If you are willing to live your life according to these basic principles, good things will happen. This idea is the rock on which Tom Johnson built his life, and it transformed him from an insecure boy to one of the most powerful figures in American media. As a teenager, Johnson gravitated to his hometown newspaper, the Macon Telegraph, because he needed a paycheck. It turns out he needed something more and he will never forget the jolt of self-esteem that vibrated through his soul the first time he saw his byline. His superiors could see that he had the making of something special. In the years ahead, Johnson moved from one important position to the next, eventually becoming publisher of the Los Angeles Times, and then president of CNN. No one worked harder than Johnson, and no one invested himself more deeply into his job. But this powerful man had a secret, a secret closely connected to the raging ambition that drove his success. You grew up in Macon, Georgia. Paint that picture for me. What was it like? I was born in 1941 uh, in Macon, Georgia. Uh, Macon was uh, then and is to some extent today a, uh, a, 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 a town 
that uh, has uh, a very uh, a, a sort of a major combination of African Americans and whites. Uh, it, it is a town that has attracted many people from around the state of Georgia uh, into that, particularly those who are looking for uh, better opportunities, much like many people were attracted in the southeastern United States to Atlanta. You had a lot of great music in Macon in those days. Great music, terrific music. Who influenced you the most when you were growing up? My mother was by far my greatest influence. Uh, She uh, said to me often, Tommy, if you work hard and do right, you can accomplish almost anything you hope to accomplish in life. And that's the ball game. We talk about that often on this show. If you have a dream and you're willing to pay the price. If you work hard at it, I am convinced uh, that that there's no substitute, uh, not even the best college degrees, and I was lucky to get two of the best, not, not um, you know, just a, 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 a willingness to give it your very best, no matter what it is you hope to, to achieve. And I think that's true in, 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 in athletics. I think it's, I think it's true in, in, in every field. There's such a need for those who will give it their very best. And what was your first ambition in life? Well, my first ambition was to make it to make it. Uh, I grew up in a family uh, where my dad had a third grade education. My mother worked six days a week in a, in a small grocery store. Uh, I sort of looked at those on the other side of Macon uh, who had sort of different life circumstances, but I wanted to make it. I wanted to, to, to become somebody, not so much in terms of wealth, but, but have the opportunity to, 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 to really make it in life. Uh, my dad hadn't made it, uh, I think in part because of his health and in part because of his education. My mother just worked her ass off all the time to try to make sure that there was adequate income uh, for us uh, in, in our home. So it was this burning, burning desire uh, to make it. And, and, and fortunately, uh, uh, at, at age 14, when I saw the need, really saw the need to get a job, uh, there was an opportunity to, to go to work in, a, in the lowest possible level at the newspaper in that town called the Macon Telegraph. Tell me about how you got that job. The uh, newspaper needs each year a sports stringer. That is to say, some high school or college, but high school student who will bring in the sports scores of the local high school team. Uh, at that one point, it meant bringing in f- scores of football, baseball, track, basketball, and uh, and to attend the games, uh, uh, bring in the, the scores and sort of the key, the really just the essence of what happened during during the, the games. Uh, and I was not the first choice or the second choice. I was the third choice. Uh, the, the English teacher who basically looked at, uh, at, at, at candidates for the job uh, recommended two others ahead of me. Both of them decided they'd rather play sports than to report on sports. 
Did you have an ambition to be a journalist at that point? Or did you just want to make some money? I needed to get a job and to make money. But how lucky I was that I discovered my passion really early in the newsroom of that newspaper with people who cared about me, people who mentored me, uh, people who taught me the hunt and peck style of typing that I used uh, today, who, who, who really saw in me promise and, 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 and supported me. Tell me about that time, what the newsroom was like when newspapers were still dominant. Uh, yes, and, uh, you know, the newsroom was alive with activity. The typewriters of that era uh, were audible throughout the newsroom. The, the wire service tickers, uh, AP and then United Press, which later became United Press International, uh, were, were, were uh, sort of constantly uh, 24-7 uh, sort of pr- providing national, state, international news. Uh, uh, there, there were a small number of reporters, I mean, less than five, uh, but a few editors and, and, a, and a, a sports editor, a city editor. I mean, it was, it was just throbbed. I mean, just, just pulse with, 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 with activity, but everybody loved their work. I mean, I found that everybody loved their work, no matter their ages. And there were some there who were well into their late sixties, still love their work. But, but more than that, uh, I mean, I just, I, there, there was this excitement of, of going into the composing room to see your copy uh, on, being brought into metal type, lead type, on the linotype machines. There was a watching the plates going onto the press and, and the press beginning to roll and the smell of, of the wonderful smell of the ink. Uh, there, there was, it was just a, it was, it was a dynamic, it was a dynamic uh, environment at the time, and I knew it what didn't take long for me to know I really wanted to be a part of it. What hit you more powerfully? The first paycheck or the first time you saw your byline? I, I was able to make 15 cents per column inch of anything that uh, appeared in the paper, and I believe I got $7.50 per game. So if I covered a basketball game, I would get $750 for that plus 15 cents an inch. And I couldn't measure the headline in it. But, but uh, I can always tell you, the first time I saw my byline by Tommy Johnson, I knew that I was getting recognition that I needed. I knew that I was becoming somebody. I knew I mean, it, was, it, was, it was an exhilaration that I that I. And, and, and after a few bylines, people in the school would say, hey, I saw that story you did. Or the athletes themselves would say, hey, be sure you don't leave me out when I do something really extraordinary. <laughs> that, that, that pass caught, that touchdown run. And it was the beginning of something thrilling. Did that validate you in a way you didn't know that you needed? Very much so. I would have been insecure. Uh, I felt uh, a sense of uh, of, uh, of an only child. Uh, I also I, I felt I really wasn't that much a part of of, of the of, of the other side of town. Uh, but 
thankfully I had built some, some, some close friends. And I think over time, those of us who, who grew up in, in sort of the, our side of, of town, we really took real pleasure in, in on, whether it was on, on the track field or whether it was in, in whatever way of, of, of achieving an ROTC. Uh, we, really, we really developed sort of a, a, a close, close bonds that even exist to today. I've just ended, just attended my 60th uh, high school reunion and some of those bonds that were formed at 14, 15, 16 are still with me. Thanks for joining us on American Achievers. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to access our exclusive premium content, visit us at AmericanAchievers.us or search for American Achievers at Patreon.com. For a few bucks a month, you get to access our monthly email newsletter, the monthly American Achievers Extra audio program, and the quarterly Zoom show, American Achievers Green Room where you get to interact with one of our accomplished and intriguing guests. For details, visit AmericanAchievers.us and click on the Premium Membership button. Want to learn about my eight books, including biographies of Paul Bear Bryant, Joe Montana, and Francis Gary Powers? Visit KeithDonovan.com or your favorite bookstore. My latest, Speed, The Life of a Test Pilot, and the birth of an American icon. It's all about Bob Gilliland and the development of the super-secret SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Now back to the program. What were some of the early lessons you learned at the Telegraph? Sam Glassman, the first editor, sports editor, said, if I can teach you only one thing, it's to get it right get it right. He said, it, whether it's the spelling of the high school quarterback's name or whether it's the score itself or the identification of, of, of the, and it was very big on spelling, but get it right. And uh, I've got, that one has stayed with me all the way. The importance of accuracy. It matters. It mattered then. It matters now. After a while, they clearly saw some potential in you, and they helped you go to the University of Georgia. How did that happen? At one point, uh, I was told by the, the, the managing editor, uh, Jim Chapman, the publisher of the paper, wanted to see me. Uh, I went in and really scared. <laughs> uh, and, and Mr. Anderson, Peyton Anderson said, Tommy, I've been told that you're one of the hardest workers that we've ever had here. What are your plans? Uh, after high school. And I said to him, well, Mr. Anderson, I really hope that I can go to college. I did not tell him that I had no money to do it. I did not tell him or ask him for money. I never have asked anybody. Uh, and, and he said, well, if you can get into the University of Georgia, uh, I'll pay your way, tuition, uh, and, and provided you continue to work for us. Uh, and, and so that led to my getting the opportunity to uh, go to the University of Georgia to, uh, to, to, to get a four-year education there in journalism. But I also commuted back to Macon from Athens uh, throughout that entire period of time. And uh, uh, many people say, well, wasn't that really tough to, 
not being a part of fraternity life or campus life on the weekends. And I said, no, I loved it. I loved it so much that I, I was excited about driving off on Friday afternoon early to get to Macon by three or to drive home uh, late on Sunday night to get back to classes on, on, on Monday. I, I never at a single time uh, regretted uh, commuting all the way back to Macon uh, uh, during that period because I just loved, I loved the work. I loved the people. Did you begin to see that your hard work was leading somewhere beyond a paycheck? Oh, very much so. I mean, I, 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 I became editor of the campus newspaper, the red and black. Uh, uh, I, I started getting recognition uh, well beyond uh, this, just the, the, the newsroom. I'll never forget winning a William Randolph Hearst writing award for college uh, students. Um, I, I, I was being recognized, uh, and I continued to write, and, and including the coverage of the desegregation of the University of Georgia. I, I wrote about that both for the campus paper and for the Bacon Telegraph uh, on it. But but I, I I just developed this this this. Uh, I, I could just say, you know, this is what I most love doing, and I was getting needed recognition, and frankly. For, for me, the praise for good work was, was more important than a paycheck. I, it's hard to really, as I look back, to say that, but truthfully, being praised for good work, uh, the editor of the paper named Bill Ott, O-T-T, uh, would write notes occasionally on, on a story that I'd written, and, I, and they moved me eventually from, from sports into general news and the state news and into desk assignments. But he would send me a note, which, and I still have them, Tommy. Well done, Ott. And, uh, uh, and the same was true. Same, same was true at, at Georgia, where I, I became more active in other parts of life uh, that were beyond just journalism itself. What did that do to you inside? Well, it made me feel uh, this wonderful um, sense of very careful say this because it can different people interpret differently. But I began to have pride in myself. I began to I began to overcome uh, the insecurity that I'd had, and I, and I had an inferiority complex, uh, young, um, and 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 I just it, it it gave me this sense of yes, you can do it. Yes, you can do it. And uh, and especially if you, if if you try to work work hard, and 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 uh, I, I I should tell you this passion, that this this flame this that was ignited, uh, it, it's not ever it's not ever dampened it's not ever blown out. Uh, there are times when I wish that you know, I, I had every every paper I had to turn in I couldn't turn it in until I knew I'd given it my best. Every everything I've tried to do in life it's almost i think a psychological issue I, i've got to give it i've got to give it my best my personal best not your best i know some people can run faster some people can leap higher some people can write better some people can do whatever but as long as as long as i could say to myself tom or then tommy you've done the best and and and, and who can ask for more that didn't mean every paper got an a either tell me about charlene hunter Galt. 
I was assigned by the Macon paper, but I also was uh, the lead reporter on the story when Charlene uh, and Hamilton Holmes came to desegregate the University of Georgia in 1962. Uh, I followed her as she entered the gates of the university. Uh, I, I walked along with her with, with a number of other reporters, both, both state and national reporters. Uh, I saw on one occasion, uh, I, well, I heard, uh, you know, two, four, six, eight, we ain't going to integrate all the time being, being shouted and more profane words being, being shouted. I saw on one occasion a, a student who sort of leaned out and, and, and tried to spit on her. I was on, and, 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 and the spittle missed, but it hit one of the, one, one, one of the uh, escorts uh, of, of her. Uh, later that night, I stood in front of, of the dormitory in which she was uh, placed as crowds gathered and out of, out of the crowd came a brick that uh, went through a window of a, of, of a dorm room, either her dorm room or one other one. Uh, I stood and listened to a group of, 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 of college girls who had said to her, because I wanted to confirm it, that they had said to her, uh, honey, said to Charlene, honey, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we've needed somebody here to help clean up our rooms and whatever. And I, it was just, I, I, could, I couldn't, I really couldn't imagine the inhumanity of it. But in any case, because I was a, a, a leader of the campus newspaper, I invited Charlene to come down and work on the red and black. And she did for a while. But, but the saddest part of this story is that some of the people on the staff were not welcoming to her. Several were, several were, and I think they became lifetime friends of hers. But even among some of the young uh, journalists, uh, there were some, they weren't hostile, they just weren't welcoming. How did that particular story and the larger civil rights movement, how did that affect you? I, I, it was the first, it was, it was really the first time that I was aware how we as a society, elements of our society could mistreat people of, 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 an, of, an, of another race. Even though I had grown up in a highly segregated Macon, I had gone to segregated grade schools and I segregated all boys, all white boys, high school, Lanier High for boys. I had not, I had not experienced it firsthand. So it, 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 it made a lasting impression on me. Uh, and also, I just should say, at 77, I still don't feel I did enough. I mean, I wrote about it in the campus paper. I call in editorials that I wrote for the students, the body at the university, not to for us to become a University of Mississippi uh, or whatever, that, that, that we needed a peaceful uh, desegregation. But but uh, I I also must tell you I became a lifetime uh, admirer of this quiet, so understated woman 
who endured those shouts, those racial epithets, the, uh, the whatever, with dignity, with courage, and just a determination that she was going to just continue. That and and of course Hamilton, I didn't know well Hamilton Holmes, but he was an athlete and a strong guy, and he wasn't going to take any crap off of anybody anyway. Uh, but 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 I have uh, I've remained close to to Charlene, and it it definitely was a, an awakening uh, to 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 a side of life that, for whatever reason, my awareness had not been as as great before that. Soon you had the opportunity to go off to Harvard. How did that happen? One, uh, all right, Peyton Addison is providing me with tuition uh, to go to the University of Georgia. Uh, I'm commuting back and forth, and um, in my uh, senior year, um, he uh, asked me to come over to see him again and asked me what I planned to do. And I said really excitingly to him, Mr. Anderson, I've applied for and been accepted to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to get my uh, master's degree uh, in, in journalism. And he said, he just sort of stopped. And he said, but what is it you most want to do? And I said, well, Mr. Anderson, you know, I really one day would like to be a publisher like you. I mean, I, I don't even know quite why that came out, other than I had seen him pull into his private garage at the, at the paper. I had seen his office. <laughs> I had seen he had a helicopter. And a, but, but, but my exact quote to him was, Mr. Anderson, one day I would like to be a publisher like you. And he said, in that case, you do not need a journalism degree. You need a business degree. And if you can get into Harvard Business School, I'll pay you away. Now, that's an extraordinary moment. Two extraordinary moments of kindness and belief in you. Amazing. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons why I try to do as much as I can today for others and do it privately without recognition, without a plaque on the wall, without a building being named, is because of what Peyton Anderson did for me uh, I mean, I was a nothing off of, of, out of Columbus Road, but somebody who wanted to make it and was willing to give it his best, give it his best. Um, but but Peyton, Peyton had this sense that he saw the promise in me, in result mostly of the people that I had been working with, and after that he he sent me to Harvard Business School again, provided I would continue to work and. Some of the great moments in my life were during those summers when it was so hot in Macon, the summer of 63, the summer of 64, the summer of 65, uh, where I was out knocking on doors in towns around Macon, Fort Valley and Perry, and, and up in Forsyth and out in, uh, in Milledgeville, knocking on doors, trying to sell a subscription and or even sell a trial subscription. And I would guess I would get one soul for every 20 doors I knocked on. But Peyton said, if you're going to make it, you need to be able to do three things. You need to be able to sell, service, and collect. Sell, service, and collect. So um, my selling experience, well, on Saturdays, I would go 
And of course, service means to make sure that they got their paper every day. Uh, usually try to get their paper by six or seven in the morning. That's another story. And then collect uh, and, and, and to go by some of those same houses and, and collect for the paper. It taught me a tremendous lesson because in some of the most affluent neighborhoods, I couldn't get the money. Uh, or I would be told to come back, or wouldn't would even answer the door. Uh, but in some of the some of the most low-income parts of Macon, uh, what Larry called Unionville, I can tell you, I, I think I was paid every Saturday uh, on it. But the service was interesting too, because I would get up at two o'clock in the morning, go and pick up the newspapers in a little, little white Macon Telegraph van take the papers out to a substation where I would roll them up, put a rubber band around them and have a route book where all the, I think I had at one point like 30 carriers and there was never a morning when one or two carriers didn't show up. They were sick, they were late, whatever. So with that van and with, and, and I tried to throw the papers as close to the front porch as I could throw it, uh, often missing, often stopping to get out to, to take take the paper and put it up on the porch, often being scared to death about the dogs uh, on it. But it taught me the importance of selling. You've, you've got to sell it. No matter what it is, you've got to sell it. Two, you've got to service it and make sure that they're getting it. And finally, you've got to collect for it. And I thought about it. They, never, they didn't teach me that at Harvard Business School. They didn't, they didn't teach me that in two years of Harvard Business School, but Peyton Anderson taught me. In selling, you're told no a lot. What did you learn about persevering in the face of rejection? When I got somebody to either buy a subscription or just buy a trial subscription, it became like a victory. It became like a maybe what it must feel like for the quarterback to come to, to, to to, to throw the hail mary in the I, I, I mean, the, the rejection was 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 hard. Uh, it was it was it was really hard, <laughs> and and and, uh, and I, I I guess that's important. To, along along the way, you, you realize that, that every answer isn't going to be the answer you're 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 hoping for uh, on it. But I also I would say, well, what did I what what approach did I? I also think that people uh, then were more open about opening the door to talk with you. I don't think they are today because of crime and, and whatever, but I sure met a lot of interesting people. <laughs> and uh, it led me, even at the LA Times or at the Dallas Times Herald, we would get calls for somebody, and I really did this very private, but we'd get called in the circulation department when I was down on Saturday morning or Sunday morning of somebody who said that I did not get my LA Times today. And I would just take a paper and drive to the home of whoever it was, knock on the door and hand them their paper. Seriously? Seriously. Seriously. <laughs> I bet you got stuck on the 405 a lot. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I did, I, usually it would be, uh, I, I, I know that I, I did that a few times in Pasadena and San Marino, which also happened to be not that far from my own my own house. Uh, something, but yeah, the word of mouth would get around, do you know who showed up and Dropping my damn paper uh, this morning. It was I don't know. It it, it became uh, I did it rarely, but the times that I that, that I did it, I wish that I'd done it a lot more because I'm trying also to demonstrate to the carriers and to the, the circulation department that nobody is above the the the, 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 the nobody's ranks too high not to get out and and 
and make sure that you're get, getting people their papers in the morning. And I also love the fact that people would always say, my LA Times didn't get here today. My Dallas Times Herald didn't get here today. My Macon Telegraph didn't. Mine. How many products do you have in society that, is, that you say is mine? Real personal. You learned those sorts of lessons at the Macon Telegraph. What did you learn at Harvard? I learned at Harvard the importance of analysis. Um, I, I mean, the case method I found to be so intimidating, it was unreal because I never knew in what classes I would be asked to start the case. And uh, in some days, uh, you, you would go for several days, never be asked to start a case, sometimes weeks. But then there would be occasions, believe it or not, where you'd have two cases and you would present your analysis of the case and then you would be shredded by the other members of the class and by the instructor. But, 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 but it really taught me the importance of, 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 of doing good, in-depth analytical work uh, before deciding what path you should take uh, and, and, and realizing sometimes there's no, there's no really right answer. It's just the best answer. After completing your studies at Harvard, you took a, a very different turn. How did you end up at the White House? My wife, Edwina, by then I had married my college sweetheart, Edwina Chastain of Athens. Uh, she had uh, uh, read an article in uh, the New York Times that was actually brought to her by, by, by another spouse that shared the New York Times, uh, this article about the creation of the White House fellowships. It was a program that was created by John Gardner and by LBJ to bring 15 uh, relatively young men and women to Washington for one year to give them assignments who were either on the White House staff or with members of the cabinet and to uh, get a full indoctrination into the strengths and weaknesses of government so that you could go back to your profession whether it was law or business or journalism or whatever, uh, with a better understanding of, of what makes government work or what doesn't work, so that hopefully more people uh, would understand it out in the various professions. Um, now, I should tell you, Edwina's motivation was not all honorable. She had had two really bad summers in Macon. Uh, the, the weather was very, very hot in Macon. Uh, the, the, there was a paper mill in Macon that was emitting the sulfuric odor, uh, odor of rotten eggs almost, and she was not looking forward to my returning to Macon uh, in the fall of 1965 after we completed Harvard Middle School. Uh, she knew I had an obligation to do so, but in any case, she encouraged me to apply. I did not think I would be chosen. Uh, I went through a regional panel in Atlanta where I'm told that I was not first, second, or third on the, 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 in the priorities. I was either third or fourth recommended to a national panel uh, headed by David Rockefeller. But somehow, someway, I was chosen, and that led to us going to work, uh, in my case, with Bill Moyers, the then press secretary to President Johnson, for a year uh, in the White House where he and President Johnson gave me every imaginable opportunity for a young man at age 23 
uh, to participate uh, in, 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 particularly in the, in the, Bill Moore was, was far more than just a press secretary. He was one of the most important policy aides to LBJ. And you came in just as the, the Great Society programs and the Vietnam War were cranking up. I was, and I should tell you, I experienced the highs and the lows of, of that. The, the lows, including hearing the protesters uh, screaming from, from, from out front of the White House, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? But also being there as legislation was passed and as, and as uh, President Johnson created things like Head Start and Job Corps and uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting <laughs> and, and, and uh, uh, the, the, the law that required the disclosure after a period of time of confidential documents so that the public would know what the government is doing with its money. Uh, but, but it was a wonderful experience, especially the kind of personal attention that I received from Bill Moyers and then when Bill left to inherit a good number of Bill's responsibilities. And you had a very difficult duty in April 1968. Well, um, 68 was by far the most traumatic year uh, maybe of my life. Uh, it may have been the most traumatic year of, uh, of, of, uh, of the country up, up until that point. But, but uh, I, um, uh, by then, I had risen in, in, the, in the ranks, um, taken over many of, 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 of Bill's duties. Uh, but, but, but on one occasion, uh, I was standing out by the wire service tickers when they went into a flash mode flash being the highest uh, level of alerts. I mean, both the AP and UPI, by then it was UPI tickers were just, as well as Reuters. And I looked and, and just saw the headline on it, it ripped, ripped it, it off and almost bounded through the door and told the president's two press sec- two secretaries, uh, one eight of Jer- George, one eight of, uh, Roberts and, and Marie Famer said, I've got to take this right in. So I took it in and handed President Johnson the note that Dr. Martin Luther King had been shot in Memphis. Uh, it was ironic. I mean, so ironic. He's sitting there and reading this flash, but beside him was the chairman of the Coca-Cola company, Mr. Robert Woodruff, uh, but also uh, Carl Sanders, who went on to become uh uh, governor of Georgia, but had been a, a positive force in civil rights in, in, in our state at the time. Uh, but but, but uh, I found it so ironic. And I'll never forget, because President Johnson's first calls went to, like J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, to, 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 to Ramsey Clark, the head of the, the attorney general, to, to, to uh, uh, Robert McNamara, who was, who was uh, 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 Secretary of Defense to whatever, and Mr. Wo- he, he let Mr. Woodruff and Carl Sanders sit there for a while. But Mr. Woodruff went over and asked President Johnson, could he use a phone? And because of where I was positioned, I could hear him talking. He asked for Ivan Allen, the, uh, the mayor, then mayor of Atlanta, and he said, and these these are the approximate words. I think they're transcripts of this actually. 
at the LBJ Library approximately. He's, he's, he said, Ivan, uh, I'm here at the White House with President Johnson. Uh, as you probably know by now, Dr. King has been shot. Uh, Hoover is saying there will be riots across America tonight. America may, may burn. And I, I want you to do whatever you need to do in Atlanta. If it takes more police, more fire, more whatever, you just go ahead and don't worry about who will who will pay for it. And of course, I later learned that he, with Mr. Anonymous, he 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 paid, I guess, for all of that. And that night, Atlanta, although there were protests, particularly at the Atlanta University campus, there were protests. But Atlanta didn't burn, as did Washington, Detroit, Los Angeles. I could go down the list. That period in the White House, did that make you cynical about politics? It made me skeptical. I I hadn't become, I hadn't really become cynical, but it made me skeptical. I was chosen as the note taker for the most highly classified meetings in the White House. And even those notes were not available when the Pentagon Papers were prepared. These were notes of President Johnson with the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of, 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 of uh, State, Dean Rusk, CIA Director Richard Helms, uh, National Security Advisor Walt Rustow, uh, chairman of Joint Chiefs, uh, General Wheeler, uh, but I took the notes, and, and, and yet the information that was coming back to President Johnson was coming largely from the field, coming largely from MACV and Saigon, and coming through uh, coming through military intelligence channels, uh, through Honolulu. And uh, President Johnson was making decisions based on on this. And I must tell you, most of the time, it was the body counts of the number of of, of Viet Cong and the number of North Vietnamese that have been killed are, you know, are 50 and there have been three Americans lost. Or the body counts of, 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 of the, in this action, there, there were there, 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 there were 700 uh, uh, Viet Cong and, and, and 23 Americans. But I saw that number. It came on up to where we were losing 400 a week, 400 a week. Uh, and, 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 and Secretary McNamara and General Wheeler, good men of really good intentions, I think, continued to press President Johnson for more troops. And it's when I started the Army. And the last request, we had gotten up to 500,000 men and women, including many that I had been in ROTC with at University of Georgia at Lanier High for Boys. It got up to 500,000, and then General Westmoreland asked for 200,000 more. He wanted to bring the levels to 700,000. There was a belief on, pres- on the part of Secretary McNamara and others that if we just added more troops, more aircraft, more uh, 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 Bombs, more, more, I mean that, that somehow that the that that the war would be won, and and there were people like General Westmoreland would come back and say, "There's light at the end of the tunnel." Now, I mean, it was, it, but but the reporters are reporting from David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan and and people and, and and Peter Arnett and others that I was knowing, UPI people. I mean, they were reporting 
that 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 is not the case. That America is not winning this war. Uh, that that uh, that 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 this whole idea of uh, that, and it just seemed like it just it just more and more and more. And what there was is more loss of life, more just dramatic. Uh, uh, defeats in a way, not military defeats, even Tet, where uh, the North Vietnamese Viet Cong attacked almost every city. The United States military came back and would almost always win uh, the battle uh, at it, but they weren't winning the war. Uh, it was the, 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 the North Vietnam was determined, Ho Chi Minh, that they were going to prevail in this, and uh, and over time, the will of the North Vietnamese clearly was stronger than the will of the American people. And God knows what a price this nation paid both under President Johnson and President Nixon. Uh, and, and again, I'm just a, I'm just a note taker, but uh, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was really, it troubled me a lot. You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. Tell me about what was called the Johnson Treatment. LBJ was the single most persuasive person that I have ever witnessed or seen. He would prepare himself for a meeting with an individual member of Congress or an individual member of, of, of a labor union leader with the information about, first of all, what he needed to achieve, but then he would know about the person. He would know, in most cases, he would know the wife by name of the member of Congress. He would have presidential cufflinks or presidential pens for, or, or signed photo for them to take home uh, to 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 their wives or their children, he would sometimes even pick up the phone and call the wife or the son or, of of a person he 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 was meeting with. He armed himself with all of the knowledge that he could, and I must tell you, I've never seen such a persuasive person as and 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 frankly, he could do it with individuals and small groups. He could do it with maybe a, even a group of forty to sixty, but he couldn't do it with television. Television was not his friend. It, 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 he was very awkward with it. But he had awesome, awesome powers of, of, of persuasion. And frequently he would trade. What I loved to watch was when he would get in a room with somebody like Everett Dirksen. Dirksen would want this uh, veteran center in his home district in Ohio. And LBJ would want a vote from a, a Republican vote for for a civil rights bill or something, and Nick and Dirksman to come in and say, "Mr. President, I am absolutely unalterably opposed to it." And uh, President Johnson would somebody would come in and say, "Now, Ev, I know that this is another topic, but you know that 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 veteran center that you want all of my advisors say that veteran center should go in Austin, Texas." There are more veterans in Texas. It's lower cost to build it in Texas. Whatever else, and, and Dirksen would sit there and look like they do have a couple of three. Right? Well, on Monday, Senator Dirksen, who had announced he was against this particular bill, reversed himself and said that he was for it. And a reporter said, Senator, how could it be? On Friday, you were against this bill. Today, you're for it. 
And Dirksen, in that wonderfully melodious voice of his, he said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a wiser man today than I was on Friday. Well, of course, he got his veteran center uh, in his home district, and LBJ got Dirksen's vote. And so he, he would use he would use two or three scotch and sodas with them at night. He would use he, he, he would use taking them on Air Force One to various places. His persuasive abilities were just mind boggling. At the beginning of 1969, you faced a career crossroads. Stay in politics or return to journalism? I should tell you, staying with President Johnson rather than going back with Peyton Anderson was the hardest decision that I ever made in my life uh, because I owed it to Peyton to return to Macon for all that he had done for me. And he was expecting me to come back. Uh, and, and instead, I was persuaded. <laughs> Loyalty has always been a gigantic thing, but I had for me, but... I had this ultimate test of loyalty, and, and the only person that I shared it with and in many, many ways was my wife, Edwina. But um, I chose to to stay with Brother Johnson, and I stayed with him, incidentally, until he announced his death uh, in, uh, in, in, in 1973. Um, by then, uh, I had decided I definitely was going to return to my career. That was not going to spend the rest of my life, and I had a very good offer from the, paper, the Knight Ritters, uh, uh, who had by then bought the Macon Telegraph, uh, to, to, to go with them. And uh, But by then also, I had met Otis Chandler, who had the, the, sort of the legendary uh, owner of the Los Angeles Times and the Times-Bearer Company that bought the television station from President Johnson. And Otis uh, gave me a very specific path uh, that if I would stay in Austin for a period of time and run the television station there at KTBC, then after the license was approved, he would move me to Dallas as the editor of the paper in Dallas. If that worked out, he would make me publisher of that paper. And if that worked out, he would, cons- he would, he would consider bringing me to Los Angeles as a president of the Los Angeles Times. And if that worked out, but he was really clear that 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 I, I would be uh, his successor as a publisher of the LA Times. Now, the fact that this person, this man Otis Chandler, had thought this through, and he had cleared it with his board, including some conservatives on 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 that board, but laid out a path for me, and each path had some high hurdles. If it worked out when I was in Austin running that TV station for, for Otis Chandler and the Chandlers and Times Mirror, I would be brought to Dallas as editor. If I did well as, as the editor of the paper in Dallas and Time Magazine named us one of the five outstanding papers in America, and in the South, sorry, in the South. Uh, and then I was promoted to publish and chief executive officer of the Dallas paper. And then after that, he came down and he said, okay, uh, you've been in this for two years. I want you and Edwin to come to Los Angeles as president of the LA Times. And again, if you do as I think you will, as well as I expect, you will be my successor. And two years later, uh, uh, to the astonishment, I think, of the media world, and especially uh, the, 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 the more, well, just the media that, that he, had, he had brought out of Texas, this young guy, uh, and then in, in, in that 1980, 
maybe the publisher and chief executive officer of the LA Times, the first non-Chandler. So can you imagine what I thought? I tried so much to get Peyton to come out for the announcement ceremony, but he said, no, that, that show belongs to you. He wouldn't come out, but that a kid that he had helped get a, into the University of Georgia and Harvard Business School could have the opportunity to become the chief executive officer of what was then the largest daily newspaper in America. What was then uh, the most successful financial newspaper ahead of the New York Times? One of the editors on the paper said, well, I think, it's, I think, I think naming Tom as Bush League uh, brought his kid out from Texas. But Otis saw, I guess, in me, much of what Peyton had seen in me, or maybe what Bill Moyer said, that here's a guy who will work his ass off, who will give it his very, very best, who's willing to, to try to learn. And I do think that having the journalism background and the MBA, the business background, may be uniquely uh, 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 sort of qualified when they considered that. I had not just a news background, but I had a business background as well on it. But they had tremendous confidence in me. Uh, I mean, and at such an early age. And and I should tell you, I loved working for Otis Channer. God, I was really worked with him for 17 years from from the Dallas from the from the Austin television station that he acquired to the Dallas newspaper. They had acquired to the uh, to the LA Times and a real giant in in the world of journalism. Does the demise of the newspaper industry concern you for the future of the country? It causes me exceptional concern about our democracy. Where will the watchdogs where are the watchdogs in our local government, local city council, local county commission? local businesses who who is going to watch i mean who is going to watch uh, what is really happening in, in these towns the internet's not going to do it in my opinion uh i mean especially i think that these 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 towns in which the newspaper was not just the source of local sports and local business and local obituaries and local duis but they were the ones that attended uh, the city hall meetings and the county commission meetings. They were the ones who 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 who, who saw the 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 the, 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 the illegal acts that were taking place. Uh, and I I am terribly terribly worried about it. Looking back at the at the Dallas situation, where you had two very good newspapers going head to head in the 1970s and, and 80s, what did you learn about competition? What I learned it is really good, and uh, I, 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 but 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 also that uh, that that you can you can compete and still respect your 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 opposition. You, you can respect your opponent, uh, and and uh, but 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 I I just think it's true of almost any field. And I look at all these you know mega mergers that are taking place in our society and everything else. I think I think I, I think we. It, Competition really is good. It, it it means that you 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 produce a better newspaper. You make sure that you're delivering them on time. That you make sure that you're pricing the subscription price or the advertising price at a competitive uh, rate. That you aren't taking advantage of your market position to to gouge people 
on 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 rate uh, uh, that 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 people have to be when people have a choice uh, that then they are going to have make in some cases they're going to make a choice because it's a better product in some cases because it's a better price in some cases because the service is 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 is, is very good uh, but but in many cases it's, it's just because I, I know that's valuable to me valuable to have it. And and my God, the competition we had between the newsrooms, and 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 that period of time was just tremendous. <laughs> the L.A. Times represented excellence. It was known as a writer's paper, even though you were able to maintain pretty high profit margins. How did the paper manage to strike that balance during those glory years? That was Otis. Otis believed in excellence. He, you mean, I mean. He believed it in every aspect of his life, whether it was in his athletics or whether it was in his car collection, in his racing, in his bicycling, but especially in his in his L.A. Times. That was the word that he used more than, than any other. We are going to be as good as the New York Times. We are going to be as excellent as, as, as the New York Times. But we're also going to cover all of these suburban markets. Uh, with regional editions and 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 you know I, I just I thought about it from, from from Santa Barbara to the Mexican border with with regional editions, local editions, but a pursuit of excellence and and Otis drove that. Otis drove that. So Tom, in the summer of 1990, I was in Los Angeles to interview Ted Turner. We spent 90 minutes or so together at a prominent hotel in Beverly Hills, and as we were finishing up he started asking me about my background, just small talk. When he learned that I had worked as a, a sports writer at the, at the Times, he started asking me about you. Said he was having dinner with you that night. Well, a few weeks later, you were announced as the new president of CNN. And I was so irritated at myself for not putting two and two together. And that day was a... Was, that, that day was a probably maybe the most decisive day and uh, uh, as, as I now learned from you I also learned from Bob Shear and Nardis Aquino that he somewhere ran into them and he was asking everybody they could who worked at the times you know to, 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 to tell him about me uh, and, and thank God I got some good references from you and from Norda and <laughs> and and and, 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 uh, and, and, and I guess some and, and, and some others um, you know, and, and of course, that decision in itself, too, was, was uh, and to work for Ted, who had the passion that Otis had, that had the passion uh, for, for, for I, said, I, said, I said to Ted, I said, Ted, what is it that you want the next president of CNN to do? And he said, I want you to help me make it the best news organization or news service, I think he said, in the, on the planet. Exact quote on the planet. I said, "What else?" And he said, "That's it, pal." <laughs> I mean, so going from Otis and those years to going to Ted, and I'd been told so many stories about Ted. I wasn't sure whether it was a good idea or not. Um, but but then I met with Jane Fonda. I went to meet with Jane Fonda. I said, "Jane, tell me about Ted." And she said, "He's the most remarkable man I ever met." You know. I had, um, it, it, I, I, well, t- two 
things. Uh, the the right wing members of the Chandler family, including a couple who were members of the John Birch Society, uh, had decided by the, as it approached 1990 in that that the LA Times was too liberal and that our profit margins of, I think, 26% did not compare favorably with the Gannett profit margins of about 40%. Um, but I was, uh, I, I was under tremendous pressure, uh, and even Archbishop Mahoney, who, had, who later became Cardinal Mahoney, had written a note to the then president or chairman of Times Mirror, uh, Robert Aburro, about the very liberal uh, LA Times um, and, and, uh, and, and, and at different board meetings at other times, I would, I would get uh, uh, some of the Chandlers like Harrison Chandler or Bruce Chandler, or s- some of them, Dan Frost, who was married to Otis, uh, such a joke, sort of stick it to me. Uh, and, and then on one occasion, the chairman of Southern California Edison, Howard Allen, took me to lunch at the California Club. And he said, Tom, unless you start running the times, the way the Chandlers want it run, you're going to be out. That was the exact quote. Tom, unless you start running the times the way the Chandlers want it run, you're going to be out. And, and I said, well, Howard, and I, I'd become a friend of Howard Allen. Uh, I said, Howard, you need to convey back to them that I will continue to run the LA Times the way that Otis Chandler and I agreed that it would be run, that, uh, that Otis brought me here. And I have run this paper. I've been I've been extraordinarily uh, loyal to the vision that Otis had for for the Times. I will not fire Tony Day, the editor, the editorial page that I've been ordered to fire. I will not try to get Paul Conrad, the cartoonist of the LA Times, to be somewhat more uh, not quite as harsh on on some of the cartoons that offended. Uh, uh, the archbishop and and uh, and offended some of the business leaders. And I said, you know, we have really built a spectacular paper here, and it continues. Well, it wasn't long after that, just in a matter of a couple of weeks, when I was summoned to the office of the then chairman of the company, uh, Robert Burrow, who said, Tom, I'm going to make a change, and uh, I'm going to replace you as publisher, and I'm going to name you. And he gave me a whole bunch of other titles. The chairman of the newspaper group, chairman of the marketing group, chairman of the, uh, I forget whatever else groups I was going to be. But basically, my dream job was being taken away from me, and it sent me into a very deep depression. I mean, I it, this job that I so loved, that I'd aspired to be the publisher of a, of a great American newspaper, and if by then it had a chance to do Dallas too. But when they ripped that out of me, I, I just went into a, a depression so deep that I seriously considered suicide. Thankfully, Ted Turner came along with this offer uh, after a few months, and I had some other good offers, but this one was the one that had the greatest appeal to me, and it was recommended strongly by my friend Bill Moyers, my friend uh, Walter Cronkite, and and others, that that, that they thought the future of of television news was going to be CNN and 24-hour news. Let's talk about your depression. When did you first become aware of it? My wife believes that I had shown evidence of it um, earlier, uh, and and I think that that, that is true. But I not 
until I was removed as publisher of the Times, I had not been in a serious depression. Uh, removing me as publisher, like stripped away who I was, it stripped away my, my, my almost like, it took a while for me to realize I was much more than just a publisher. But uh, I retreated to wanting to be in a dark room by myself. There were times when my assistant, uh, Joan Clunder, would, would change my calendar some so that I would sort of just t take a nap under my desk uh, or, or sort of re recharge my, I think it's almost like a, a, a battery that goes down to, and you need to recharge your battery on your cell phone or something. But uh, I, I, um, I had not seen a psychiatrist at that point, but my wife saw just how severe it was. I was retreating from activities. I was retreating from people. I was trying my best to keep up a good front at work. Uh, I was really trying to keep, I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, I just I had suicidal thoughts uh, that I'm sort of worthless. I'm, I've lost what I worked to build in my life. Uh, and it was only after she forced me to go to a psychiatrist at UCLA who quickly said to me, Mr. Johnson, you have chronic depression. And he placed me on the first of what were maybe five different medications, uh, including Prozac, but but the first ones didn't work. I, uh, I guess the first one was was lithium. Uh, they would leave me with a very dry mouth, almost like cotton in my mouth. I couldn't speak uh, at public events very well. Uh, I was just, I was, I was just. But in, anyway, uh, uh, I did not start getting a real lift out of that deep darkness. I felt like I was down in a dark, dark well. And sort of trying to claw myself up and out of it, uh, and, and but it was only after moving to Atlanta, accepting the job with Ted, uh, finding a new psychiatrist with a new medication, a doctor named Dr. Charles Nemiroff, who who's now at the University of Texas Dell School in in Austin, but uh, uh, he identified. I mean, he did another diagnosis. Uh, and and started me on on a, on a new medication, and I just I think a combination of a wonderful new opportunity with Ted and the the the, the new meds, uh, and we 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 progressively got we progressively have discovered new medications that work much more effectively. So uh, I started coming up and out of it, and and quite honestly. For the last several years, thanks to medication and thanks to, to talk therapy, I've had very few uh, uh, serious bouts with it. I've had a few mild bouts of it, but I, I just my message is that depression is a treatable a treatable illness. Depression is a treatable illness, and with the right diagnosis and treatment, you can come up and out of in most cases. Perhaps not all, but in most cases, and I work a great deal now to try to uh, to, to deal with it. Such a stigma 
has existed about mental health. Uh, and, and, and I think it's kept many people from even going to get uh, diagnosis and, and, and treatment. So it's one of my major missions in life now is, is to work in the field. And, and I, I'm, I'm so almost grateful uh, that I had the kind of doctors and, and support that, that, that I did because I, I know I wouldn't be here today without it. You did something pretty gutsy. You broke the news to Ted before he hired you, right? I did. Uh, on I, what I thought was the last, on the, on the evening that we were to make the deal, now Ted was so preoccupied with Jane, uh, but the, the four of us went to dinner. My wife, Edwina, Jane Fonda, Ted Turner, and myself. And my words, as I recall them clearly, I said, Ted, before you hire me, you need to know that I battle depression. Now, the words he said back to me that he does not remember, his words he said back to me, hell, pal, let me tell you about me. (laughs) And we bonded. In fact, for the longest time, both of us, Dr. Nemiroff was then at Emory, and he was he he was our counselor from, and and uh, I've seen some of Ted's most brilliant ideas come when he, when 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 he was at sort of the top. I mean, uh, you know, some call that manic depressive. I don't know, but uh, 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 I also opened up with three old friends of mine: uh, Art Buckwall, uh, Mike Wallace, and Bill Styron. I'd gotten to know them earlier in life. I knew that all three had battled serious depression. I opened up first with Art and then with Mike. And and I I think what I've tried to say to people is if Art Bokwal can continue to write columns that were among the most popular columns of its time, if Mike Wallace can continue to run 60 Minutes, which was then the most highly respected news magazine on, and if Bill Styron can continue to turn out Pulitzer Prize winning books, all three of whom at one point I think were hospitalized with their depression, if, if they can come through it, you can too, with the right diagnosis, with the right treatment, and, and, and not let the stigma be so powerful that you don't go and get treatment, that you don't talk with somebody like with me. If you need to come and talk with somebody in total secret about your depression, you're afraid to go and talk to your, your doctor, your wife, your boss, come and talk with me. I, I would be delighted. Anybody who wants to come and talk with me, I'll see them or by phone or, or whatever. Did getting the job with Ted, did that make it easier to deal with your depression? Yes, much more so. Because I had really by then decided that I was a failure. A failure? Let's take a step back. You had been the publisher and editor of the Dallas Times-Herald and the publisher of the Los Angeles Times. And you thought you were a failure? I thought, uh, I mean, I mistakenly had identified... I had mistakenly concluded that I was publisher of the Los Angeles Times. What I didn't realize was that I also 
am a father, a husband. I'm 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 a I'm a I'm a good friend to to other people. Uh, I am a, a a person who can get stuff done. Uh, I, I mean, there's more to me than a title. But it took me a while, and maybe that's because I set that goal so clearly, and 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 reached it not once but twice, and when it was ripped away it was like I ripped away my my self-worth my identity and i really tell people that particularly people who may be losing their jobs for any different reasons do not identify your self-worth by a job uh and and i had i i really had had uh, that that was a big mistake in in, in my life solely identifying myself that way I learned I'm a lot more than that. I'm a I'm a I'm a good person in most ways, and 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 and, and, and I can help others uh, uh, because of my own experience. But it took me a while to it took me a while to learn that. Have you ever considered the irony that this this jolt of self-esteem that you got as a young man, which you desperately needed from that byline from that paycheck? That in the end, this made you vulnerable to this. There's no question that it did. There's no question uh, that it did. And there's another warning that I have for everybody in life. Do not become a workaholic as I did. Um, I became a, a workaholic. The guy that was there first in the morning, the one that was usually out of the office last at night. I was the one that, that, that put my career ahead of my own two young, wonderful children. I was not a good daddy. I was out the door frequently before they had their breakfast. I was home too often after they had gone to bed at night. Uh, I was driven. I was driven. And when I say I was driven toward making it, it wasn't making it just for money. It was making it because I wanted to become somebody. I wanted to. I, I wanted to provide for my mother. I wanted to provide then for my wife. I then wanted to provide for my children, and then I wanted to provide for 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 for, for, for others. It was like I, I know that a profound part of this is my dad, who never made it. And was a really sort of happy-go-lucky guy that everybody loved, but he never worked really, except when he would periodically do sort of part-time part-time work. His health was not good. He consumed Maxwell House black coffee around the clock and consumed Lucky Strikes around the clock. But I, but I also know that that I was trying to be something different from 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 my dad. And how do you strike that balance between? wanting to achieve and all of the great things that can come out of aspiration and needing it as a form of validation? I, I don't know. I mean, I keep saying to those in every situation, do not become a workaholic like I did. Make time for play. Make time, whether your play is golf or tennis or 
or or or water skiing or you know snow skiing or skydiving or make time for play make time for your family i mean i now know with certainty that at the end of life's way it's your family and your friends that matter more than any title you may have had i'm i'm convinced that that your family and your friends are more important to you than any titles you may have had uh, in life. Yes, wealth or resources can enable you to do a lot more for others and for your own in your own lives. But but uh, it, you know the, those who just calculate their their, their wealth that they are calculating they, they they really aren't calculating what matters most. It's that those friendships and that family that that you have. And God, I've been lucky. I've been so lucky uh, to, to and, and now I'm, of course, into the era of granddaughters, one about to be 17 and another soon will be 19. And nothing has brought me more pleasure than, than those two girls. And I'm in many ways making up for lost time. I'm, I bet I'm 10 times the grandfather, maybe more than I was the father. In fact, my daughter at one point said, I wish that I had had a father as good as my two daughters have a grandfather. Ah, I wish that could have had a father as good as my two grand, my two daughters have a grandfather. How does that make you feel? Well, it makes me feel wonderful about being a grandfather, but it also, uh, and, 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 and certainly, uh, it is the biggest regret of my life that I was not a better father to my two young children uh, one of them turned out to get two or three degrees uh, from Berkeley and, and became a, a teacher of, of, uh, of uh, the children of, of, of migrant workers. And the other got a couple of degrees in psychology and turned out to be, to be a, psych, a child psychologist. Uh, they're both really, really good people. And, and uh, uh, But, but uh, if I could rewrite my, my story... It, it, it would have been. I don't think it. I don't think I had to do it so extraordinarily. Uh, the devotion of time to it. I could. Have, I could. Have, I, don't, I think I didn't. It wasn't necessary that I had to do, do it quite as extensively as I did. I think I could have been a far better father, uh, and 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 still have made it. Maybe not as far, but uh, um, maybe I. I uh, as I look back, that, that, that is the one that hurts the most. What was your ambition when you first took the job at CNN, not knowing what was just around the corner? I asked Ted, what is it, Ted, that you expect of your next president of CNN? And, and his exact quote, as I said earlier, was, I want us to make it the best news channel or the best news service on the planet and I said what else and he said that's it pal those are almost exact quotes and so uh, I, I was really helped though by Saddam Hussein because I arrived uh, August 1st and Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait I think on my second day at work and, and it was at war in the Gulf where we had live exclusive coverage out of downtown Baghdad and others that propelled CNN 
around the world. And uh, as, as Tom Brokaw said, it's no longer the little chicken news network. And, and I must tell you, we loved running circles around ABC, NBC, CBS, BBC uh, in, in, in our coverage. But, but CNN already, with its coverage of Tenement Square and its coverage of baby Jessica in the well, and that CNN had already demonstrated that, uh, that it had it. Uh, and, 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 and I just came in at this wonderful time. Uh, uh, and, and, and also, uh, I was, I, Ed Turner, who was the chief news executive when I came in, he came in my office on the first day and he looked at me. He said, Tom, Ted should have hired me. No, Ted should have named me president of CNN, not you. But since he named you, I just want to tell you that you'll have my absolute loyalty as long as you are in that job. And he gave it. Ed, not Ted Turner. And I, and on every occasion when I really needed Ted, including uh, I went over to Ted. Ted, I said, Ted, you had said let's. If you had said you want it to be the best news network on the planet, I'm going to need to spend for, uh, up to maybe thirty million dollars over budget to put in place the satellite uplinks, the people in the field, get all the supplies, everything that we need, because there will either be a peace that Jim Baker will negotiate with Tariq Aziz, or there's going to be war. And I said, we, we've got to be prepared. He said uh, to, to me, he said, uh, you spend whatever you think it takes, pal. Those were his exact words. I mean, you spend whatever you think it takes, pal. And I walked out of there with Ed Turner. I said, I think I'm working for another Otis Chandler. And I said, I'm not even sure Otis would have told me that. But as a result, we set up all the various uh, uh, feeds, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, uh, uh, I mean, t Tel Aviv, uh, everywhere in the area. We had uh, satellite uplinks, satellite feeds, uh, including that famous four wire in downtown, in downtown uh, Baghdad uh, at the Al Rashid uh, uh, Hotel. And then... When we got word from, from Colin Powell, uh, Marlon Fitzwater, and President Bush called me directly that, it, that war was imminent, and I called Ted, and I said, Ted, I got three choices. We have three choices. I can move our people out of Baghdad back to Amman until the war is over. I can move our people from the downtown Al Rashid Hotel to, to, to the outskirts, or we can leave them in place. And I'll tell you, honestly, I would have moved them out because I had lost two LA Times correspondents, uh, uh, Joe Alex Morris in uh, Iran and, and my correspondent on the border with Nicaragua and Honduras. Uh, uh, but but uh, it left to my own, I probably would have moved them out. Ted, at the highest voice I've just about ever heard, he said, our policy, Tom, will be that those who want to stay can stay. Those who want to come out, we had a daily, we had a daily charter, can come out. But Peter Arnett had already said, Tom, if you try to take me out, I'm going to go to work for another organization. I'm staying. Uh, but in any case, that was a decision. Oh, then he screamed at me, that's our decision, and you will not overturn me, pal. I wasn't planning to overturn him, but he was so emphatic. Uh, so, you know, most everybody stayed, and the bombs came down within 100 yards or so of the Al Rashid Hotel. But just as he had given approval uh, to put the kind of funds in to cover the war, uh, he, he decreed <laughs> that we would stay. 
And uh, he said, I also will take off of your conscience and put on my conscience the responsibility of those who may die. He said, I know you lost two people at, when you worked the LA Times. I told him a lot about that. It really bothered me. Uh, but I'll take it off your conscience, put it on mine. And, and I went to sleep that night, incidentally, thinking that the next morning, uh, Peter Arnett and John Holloman and, and Robert Weiner and, and uh, Bernie Shaw wouldn't, wouldn't be there. What did you learn from Ted about the importance of risk-taking? That he, has, he is a much braver risk-taker than I am. I am... I really still try to not just make decisions spontaneously or compulsively. I try to do sort of maybe it's Harvard Business School. I try, I try to analyze uh, and look at you know, uh, but but Ted is a far more. Uh, uh, I mean, Ted. Ted, Ted is such an original thinker. I mean, I don't know what he was like in an Aristotle or Plato or some of those greats of yesteryear, but these 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 thoughts would come out of Ted, like you know, uh, I mean, everything he did, he created. Later, he bought things, but uh, he he created CNN. There wasn't anything even approximating CNN. And you know, even before he left, there wasn't an airport channel. There's an airport channel in every in every airport in the world, just about. Uh, but 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 uh, I, I I love to see that. But at times he would have ideas like he said he said Tom we're we're going to have blimps. I said what do we going to have blimps, Ted? He said blimps. We're going to get blimps. We're going to put cameras on the blimps. Uh, the blimps can stay on position longer than helicopters. Uh, and blimps. And he started going all this thing. And one of them, he said, well, then we could go over Augusta National and we'd go. I said, hold it, Ted. We couldn't get rights to shoot from a blimp Augusta National. And CBS had the rights to thing. But anyway, th- there came a time when, when I didn't do it. There are times when I think I should have bought maybe 10 blimps or leased them. And today we have drones. Today, in a way, what Ted Turner envisioned 25 years ago we have drones that can go up and with cameras can get into locations for fires and floods and hurricanes and disasters and everything. And, and CNN today has a whole team of, uh, of, of drone pilots and drones. CNN's coverage of the Gulf War, especially that first night, did you understand how transformative it was for the American public? No, I didn't appreciate I did not appreciate it until... Sometime during the night, several hours, I looked up at all of our monitors. We had monitors of ABC, NBC, CBS, BBC, NPR, not NPR, uh, PBS. We had all of these, but we had the local stations in, in, in Atlanta. All the locals, every single channel was showing the, uh, the, the live coverage of CNN. We had given them permission they asked for permission to use our live coverage for a period of time. Uh, and, and that's when I realized, my God, has that ever happened before, even in any stretch of my news life? Uh, it probably would have happened at the Kennedy assassination or, 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 or you know, if there had been a, a live cameras for World War, for, for Pearl Harbor. Uh, 
But uh, uh, no, that, that's when I saw the enormity of, of the impact uh, of, 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 CNN, of CNN. Some months later, I, I came to Atlanta to do a feature on you. And an image sticks with me all these years later. Your staff kept bringing in little scraps of paper, which became a pile on your desk. Each little scrap containing another station somewhere around the world that had just picked up CNN's feed, which was suddenly worth stealing. That's right. (laughs) Well, they reminded me also that in the earliest days when I wasn't there at CNN, that Ed Turner and, 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 and some of the team at the time, Bert Reinhardt and, uh, and, and some of the others would, without any approval, steal from the local station. So it was like turnabout is fair play. But yes, I had, and I had to call Ted though. I said, Ted, what do I do? Do, do we let all of these stations uh, use, our, uh, use uh, our, our coverage? And he said, yes. For a while, and he didn't say how long, but for for for, for a while. But uh, I stayed on the phone a lot with him, and and I, and I really must tell you, those who predicted I would have a tough time with Ted, I had eleven of the best years of my life, very much like the eleven years with with Otis, very different. But there was not one single time that I ever got into a personal fight with either with with either Ted Turner or with Otis Chandler. There were differences, and. Uh, and and, and, and and seriously, if I'd been, it'd been left to, up to me alone, I probably would have moved our team out of Baghdad after I'd gotten a call from George Bush, Marlon Fitzwater, and Colin Powell emphatically. In fact, Colin Powell said I was compromising his mission by staying there. I learned later that the Al Rashid Hotel was a targeting point for the Tomahawks and the cruisers. Uh, they, would, they would use that as a targeting point to go on out to other locations. What would you have done? Uh, how would you have reacted if one of those tomahawks had hit the Al Rashid? Well, I would have been on the next plane. I've always felt that uh, I, I, w- I would have been on the next plane to get 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 there if I could possibly possibly get there, and I would have flown back with the bodies if I could have if I if I could have. Uh, I mean, because I would have felt that I was responsible. I, I was on the phone with all of their wives and girlfriends throughout all of that. I mean, Bernie Shaw's wife was extremely nervous. John Holloman's wife, extraordinarily nervous. But but Bernard, but Arnett, he said, you know, Tom, you, if you if you try to pull me out, I'm going to work for somebody else. <laughs> uh, so he stayed with us. What's the biggest regret of your life? Not being a better father to my children. By far. Have you forgiven yourself for that? Nope. I never will. I put my own ambition and drive to excel and drive to make it ahead of what was far more important. My two terrific young kids. Thankfully, I had a wife that, uh, that, that, that filled much of that, and I see it in the in the families today, the single families of today, where there's no father. Now there are no fathers today for other reasons, but I'll never forgive myself for that. I've had a variety of doctors tell me I should and I must and I could, and I, I'll never be able to. I, I put my own 
blind ambition uh, to make it, to excel, to achieve, to become somebody ahead of being a really good dad. And have you dealt with the burden of your father? I have never been able to come to a uh, resolution about my dad. I have not forgiven myself for not ever having told him I loved him. Uh, I have never come to a resolution of my anger at what I saw to be his um, uh, carefree approach to life. Uh, I haven't forgiven him for not carrying his share of the load when it looked like my mother was carrying 95% of the load. But, you know, he wasn't an alcoholic. He wasn't a philanderer. He wasn't a, and, and, and I was unnecessarily hard on him. Uh, and I am, I am still trying to uh, come to grips with that, but I haven't yet. If you had an opportunity to go back and spend five minutes with that teenage boy, that teenage boy was just starting to believe in himself and see the possibilities in his future, what would you tell him? Be sure not to neglect the most important, the most important part of your life. That's your family. Tom, we sure appreciate your time. Well, I thank you. You've dug a lot out of me that I've never, I've never gone into before. Thanks to Elaine McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You too can become an American achiever.